coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and here with me again today is my co-host, Curtis, and we've got a loaded show today which means it's going to be a little bit of a different type of show for us. All of you long-time listeners, you guys know, the way we generally structure our shows is to have like one big topic that we really dive deep into, whether it's the JT Daniels transfer a couple weeks ago, uh, a statistical breakdown of our program's talent level relative to other contenders, or you know during the season, uh, a game preview show. We usually have one big topic that we discuss in great detail, but every now and then, we have a lot of newsworthy items drop right around the same time, and we have to change things up just a bit and try to fit all of them into one episode before everyone moves on to the next bit of news to drop. And that's kind of where we are today. I'm one of those guys that likes to plan ahead. It helps me keep my stress level down. It helps keep me sane to operate that way. So believe it or not, we actually have the rest of our off-season episodes completely laid out. It's ready to go. We have to record them, but the ideas for the show's the schedule itself is completely laid out for the rest of our offseason episodes. I mean, we know what each episode is going to be about from here until week one of the 2020 season. But sometimes news drops, like the JT Daniels transfer news two weeks ago, and, and you got to adjust on the fly, which is just part of the deal. So today, we're going to open with a topic that we had originally scheduled for today's show, which is Jamie Newman's Heisman Odds before covering some other stories that have dropped since we recorded our most recent episode last weekend. Greg McGarity accepted another one-year deal. That's been in the news. Uh, Our athletic board met last week. we got to talk about that a little bit. President Moorhead, after that meeting, spoke to the media and had some interesting things to say on the athletics front. And there have been some more positive developments, at least what I'm perceiving to be positive developments over the past week or so, that are adding some positive momentum to the possibility of, who knows, having fans in the stands for college football this fall. So, a lot to talk about, which means we need to get to it. And we're going to open with some Heisman Trophy odds. The 2020 Heisman odds, I mean, this isn't necessarily new. They've been trickling out since, you know, really right after the national title game, January, February. But earlier this week, Westgate Superbook in Vegas, they released the most recently updated Heisman odds, at least the most recently updated that I have seen. And they had Jamie Newman as the fifth most likely candidate to win the actual Heisman Trophy with 16 to 1 odds. He was behind, of course, you know, the guys, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, who were both tied at the top at 4 to 1 odds. Then right behind them, you have presumptive Oklahoma starting quarterback Spencer Rattler as a redshirt freshman at 12 to 1. Then coming in at number four, Texas quarterback Sam Ellinger, one of those guys, seems like he's been there for about 64 years. He comes in at 14 to 1, and that's where Newman comes in, right there behind Ellinger at number five with 16 to 1 odds. So, Curtis, that's kind of where Newman, if you've been paying attention to these Heisman odds throughout the offseason, that's kind of where he's been in most of the odds that have been released from the various sources out there. Odd Shark had him at six, uh, DraftKings had him at number five, William Hill had him the highest that I've seen. They had him all the way up at number three with, well, I think, like 10 to 1 odds. But Number five is about, on average, where he is in most of these these uh, these odds. So, Kerr, are you buying this? How, how serious should we be taking Jamie Newman as a Heisman contender in 2020? 
You know, the more I think about it, I kind of actually buy it. And the reason I buy it, I mean, while a lot of it depends on what we do with the receivers and the offense, the one thing that really sticks out to me is our backfield is such an unknown and not a lot of experience that I don't know going into it like the last four or five years, we've always had horses back there that have had a lot of experience carries and we know we can rely on them. And we don't have that in the backfield this year. So I think that Newman is going to get a lot more carries than people realize, especially in your read option situations, trying to create a numbers game and he may be pulling it and carrying it um, and, you know, even design runs and things like that. And I think that's where he's going to maybe get a chance to really put himself up if we have a good season. That's an interesting point. Do you think the JT Daniels transfer and the potential for him getting his eligibility, do you think it makes it more likely that we'll use Newman in that running role than maybe we would have otherwise? I think it would, especially if he gets his eligibility. You also don't have to protect him as much, knowing you have a capable potential backup up there that can win you a game if he has to come in. And also, I mean, you just have to look at what you have. You don't know. You, I mean, you hope Zamir's going to keep healing. and you. I mean, you just don't know. And that's the thing with, with all these uncertainties. And, I mean, as we can see, teams, when you get the numbers game and you can force them into it, actually having to watch you with the read option, and the way our running attack is with the big, strong offensive line, it already favors us to have a strong power running attack in it. And Jamie Newman can be that guy. He's not one of these dual threat guys that's really slight of stature. Like like Lamar Jackson, for instance, fantastic athlete, like just an incredible athlete. But when watching him uh, when, back when he was in college at Louisville, they he obviously would run the football, but he they didn't run a ton of like quarterback power stuff with him because that's not where he was most effective. He's not going to be most effective between the tackles, putting his shoulder down, running through people. He's not going to be able to hold up against that kind of pounding. It's just not his frame. Newman's a different animal. Yes, he has athleticism, not Lamar Jackson-level athleticism, but much better athleticism than we're used to at quarterback. He can run, but he also has that kind of thick stature for a quarterback to where hopefully he can kind of withstand some more of that pounding than maybe some of those other dual-threat quarterbacks that may be of slightly smaller stature. I mean – Yeah, Justin Fields can break some long runs, but the one thing that really sticks out for him is you see, wow, five total touchdowns, you know, three passing, two rushing, and that's the stat sheet that you could potentially see for Jamie Newman, especially as you get into those goal line situations, and you want an extra blocker with a power, and he may be actually probably our most powerful running option at the goal line. That, honestly, I've said this for many years. Where I mean, dual threat quarterbacks are valuable all over the place. Don't get me wrong. You can use their skill sets anywhere on the field, but it makes you so much more deadly in the red zone. I think that's where the greatest value of a dual threat quarterback comes in play is in the red zone because you have got to be able to run the football when you get in the red zone with the way the field's condensed, it shrinks there. Defenses don't have to defend as much grass. It's much tougher to throw the ball in the end zone. I'm not saying you can't do it. Teams do it, obviously, but it's much more difficult to do it, especially when you don't have that running game there. And even if you have a strong running game, think about all the issues we had early in the Kirby Smart tenure with Cheney trying to punch balls in the end zone. Even when we that's were when you had playing for like national Chubb, title. And that's when you started watching, especially things all the way back to the Rose Bowl. Chubb ran it in for the game time touchdown. We didn't give them a chance to crash from the backside. We just said, hey, take it in a, sh- in a wildcat and go. Yeah, absolutely. And when you ha- so you have to be able to run the ball in the red zone, and it's tough to run the ball in the red zone because teams know you have to be able to do that. And again, the field's condensed; it's tougher to spread them out. And then when you ha- have a dual threat quarterback, that gives you the numbers advantage more so than you would otherwise be able to have. And that can be the difference between you punching the ball in the end zone for six as opposed to having to settle for a, for a field goal 
And that can be the difference in, in, in games when you're playing elite opponents. It absolutely could be. So I do, I'm very excited. I'm like you, I'm very excited about what he's going to bring to the table. I think he's a, he's a very good quarterback. I think his skill set is going to be very valuable to us. Here's what I would say. I, I think Newman will give us an upgrade at quarterback this year in that his skill set will allow our offense to evolve in a way that it just couldn't under Jake Fromm. It just was never going to evolve under Jake Fromm because he just didn't have the skill set to be able to do those things that would that he would have to do if our offense did evolve to what we see across the country week in and week out. So I think Newman's skill set gives us that ability, which I think allows our entire offense to be upgraded. I mean, it was we, we all know what it was. It was about scheme and lack of athleticism at quarterback last year. More than it was about anything else. There was a number of factors, but I think those are the two biggest issues. And I think Newman definitively helps us fix both those things, assuming that he ends up winning the job, which I I still will give him the edge right now. I've actually been, uh, since the JT Daniels news, I've been deep into film study watching both of those guys, going back and trying to find as much as I could from JT Daniels, uh, his 2018 season as a true freshman, and Newman last year with Wake Forest in his first four years as a starter. He had a couple games where he was injured. And just trying to compare those two. I think right now I would still give the edge to Newman, but I do think it would be a very interesting battle if Daniels does end up getting his eligibility. But I still give Newman the edge here. But as good as I think Newman's going to be, as excited as I am about what he's going to bring to our offense, what he's going to allow us to do from an offensive standpoint, I don't know if I'm there with you, Kurt. I- I'm not sure I'm ready to say he's a true Heisman candidate yet. I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm not going to sit here and say, you're wrong. Like, there's no way, not ever possible. It can't happen. I'm not ready to do that. But I don't know if I've seen enough from him to this point in his career. Now, he's only again, he's only been a starter, a, a true full-time starter for a year. I'm not ready to say that he's a true full-on Heisman candidate yet. I'm open to the possibility that he can be. I mean, we were saying, I mean, think about Joe Burrow last year, right? I mean, that's the obvious example. And I'm not saying that Jamie Newman is Joe Burrow, but Joe, Joe Burrow was what, like 200 to one odds last year coming to the season. Is that right, Carson, like that? Probably. I mean, realistically, the fact that their offense even scored average 21 points a game. I mean, that's how little you thought about their offense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, if, if, and we'll, I watched a ton of LSU. I mean, heck, we were you and I were both in Baton Rouge in 2018 when we saw that disaster. Like we we all saw Joe Burrow in 2018 and what he was as a quarterback in that season, in that scheme, in that system. And he was an afterthought. Like he was okay. He was fine. But you didn't see it coming. No, no, yeah, no one saw it coming. And like, so I, I'm I'm certainly open to the idea that Newman will be more of a candidate for the Heisman Trophy when it's all said and done this year than his numbers to this point would indicate. Because you saw the same thing from Burrow. Burrow coming in last year, like no one in their right mind would have possibly thought that. No one outside of his dad, who I actually think did cash in on him uh, and, and put a bet on that, so good for them, would, would have thought he would have been able to do what he did based off what they had seen to that point. So, And I bring that up because there's a precedent. Again, I'm not saying Newman can't do it. I, I'm, I'm trying to say, yeah, there there is a precedent for that happening where a guy doesn't have insane numbers, hasn't performed at an insanely high level coming into a year, and then with a new with a new coordinator, with a new scheme, with more talent around him, then all of a sudden he explodes on the scene and he's right up there in the Heisman Trophy conversation. I'm open to the possibility that, that could happen with Jamie Newman. I'm, I think he has the physical skills to be able to do that. I just haven't seen him do it consistently to this point. And it's also really hard to know when we have a new offensive coordinator that we haven't seen yet, like we think we know, we can base off history and what he's done in the past. We don't really know. We don't exactly know what the offense is going to look like. I'll say this, though. like To your point, Kurt, I'll give you some credit here. And here's where I don't completely disagree with you. Newman's going to be operating with better talent around him, right? That's, yeah, he will. 
That's I mean that's a no brainer. I mean he had some he had some good receivers last year at Wake Forest, but most of those guys, they, really there were three guys: yeah, Scotty Washington, Kendall Hilton, and Sage Surratt, who were all really. And Surratt was ridiculous, but. For I would say the last third of the season, he was playing without two of those guys, Scotty Washington out and Surratt out. So you got to factor that in as well. He wasn't with those guys all year long. And Jamie Newton himself was injured last year. He was banged up. But if, if you go back, like I have over the past couple of weeks here and really try to dig into Jamie Newman and watch his tape from last year, multiple games, I think there's an argument to be made from an eye test perspective that he's not there yet. I think he can get there. But if you look at his numbers, too, like, his, like statistically solid last year, 2,800 yards, almost 2,900 yards, 61% completion, 26 touchdowns, 11 picks, which is a little high for me, 564 yards rushing, good solid numbers. But are those Heisman Trophy numbers? Absolutely not. I guess that's my point, is that he's not there yet. He, I'm not saying he can't get there. He had four different games last year where he, where he completed under 50% of his passes, certainly not Heisman Trophy caliber stuff. Yeah, again, the 11 interceptions, that's – a bit much for me, man. And I'll give Barrett Salee credit here. I think he works for CBS now. He threw out a stat a couple of weeks ago. I saw this, and I, I think he threw this out there to be kind of alarmist and, and didn't really throw any context out there, which is fine. That's what people do to get attention. It's all good. But he uh, Barrett Salee's stat was against Power 5 teams with losing records last year, Jamie Newman completed 64% of his passes for 240 yards a game, nine touchdowns to two interceptions. And then if you look at the other side of the equation – Jamie Newman's performance against Power 5 teams with winning records. He completed 55.8% of his passes for only 220 yards a game, 12 touchdowns to eight interceptions. So the popular narrative has become with some of these national writers and certainly our rivals, which who cares what they say. Yeah, Barris Salih is also trying to pump up his uh, picking Florida to go undefeated type thing this year. But really, Oh, no doubt. Yeah, and trust me, we're going to get to that later on this offseason. We've got plenty of conversation about that coming up for you guys. But when you're on a lesser talented team, I mean, you're not going to put up num- like those numbers that really jump out at you because if you did, your team would be good. Absolutely. Like, what do you what What do you expect Jamie Newman to do when the Wake Forest talent around him is playing Clemson? What What is Jamie Newman supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, and, and he was terrible in that game. He was. I actually watched uh, at least the first half of that game, uh, and that was whoo. That was bad. That was not good. But again. There's context with the with the stats that Barry Sleep put out there that he just failed to mention. Conveniently, of course. In those five, he had five games against Power Five winning opponents last year that had winning records. In three of those five games, he was out. He was without two of those top three wide receivers. And with when you're playing a Wake Forest, when your when your best tailback is a glorified fullback, and you lose two of your top three wide receivers who are good players, but when they're out, you don't have the talent to replace them. So yeah, Jamie Newman's a good quarterback, but he like nobody can do it alone. Like we I mean, saw how bad Jake Fromm was without uh, Cager last year. Exactly, that was my point. We saw it firsthand last year. Fromm's numbers with and without Cager were night and day. Fromm's numbers in 2018 versus 2019, night and day. And there were various factors there, but you certainly have to think that oh, huh, without Lawrence Cager, all of a sudden now we're in trouble offensively because we didn't have the guys that really were equipped to do other than Pickens, and he was still young, that weren't really equipped to do the things that our scheme was built around in the passing game. So there's context there that I think a guy like Barrett Salee and some some people out there, some of the naysayers, are willfully ignoring when they talk about Jamie Newman and how he performed against Power five winning teams. And again, the, the, I mean, what about Kyle Trask? The guy was, I, I mean, I don't believe he did very well against power winning teams. I mean, LSU was probably his worst game. Yeah. Here's what I would say with Trask. And we're actually going to get to Trask in a minute here. 
and I had this conversation with somebody on social media this weekend. What I would say about Kyle Trask is that he is a solid, stable quarterback. In no way is Kyle Trask a game changer. In no way. In no way is Kyle Trask a game changer. He's solid. He's stable. He's not going to make mistakes that will kill you, which is why Florida fans and the national media perceive him as being so good. Is because it's all relative to where they were with Felipe Franks. Felipe Franks was so bad and was so, and made so many disastrous decisions with the ball, and I frankly cost them games. That when you had Kyle Trask come in who was never a game changer, but was a guy that didn't make those devastating mistakes that absolutely killed your team and cost you games. When he have a guy that doesn't do that, then all of a sudden he just looks so much better based off the guy who came before him, right? Like It's, it's just like the, the whole coaching cliche. Like you, you never want to follow the legend, right? You don't want to be the guy to follow Bear Bryant. You don't want to be the guy to – like whoever, when Nick, Nick Saban leaves, like you don't want to be the guy to follow Nick Saban. You want to be the guy that follows the guy who followed the guy who, who followed Nick Saban or who followed Joe Paterno or whoever it might be. You want to be that guy because in comparison, you're going to be so much better than what that guy was before. And I, and I think there's a lot of that with the Kyle Trask situation when you compare him to Felipe Franks and where they were at the quarterback position before Kyle Trask. I don't think Kyle Trask is a game changer. I absolutely do not think he's good, solid, stable, makes good decisions with the football. But I was watching the uh, the Florida-Virginia game the Orange Bowl last weekend on Saturday, preparing for this guy on the enemy show that we're going to do on Virginia here in a couple of weeks. And in the, in the first quarter alone, Kyle Trask made five horrible passes. I'm not talking about like, oh, that wasn't a great pass. I'm talking about like just flat out terrible passes in the first quarter alone. I mean, I was charting this stuff. I'm like, oh my God, like this guy is not great. Like he makes pretty good decisions with the ball, but he's not a great quarterback. So I know we kind of got off, trash, off task there. Uh, we'll we'll come back to him later on uh, in the show and also a little bit later on in the offseason. But, you know, with the eye test, uh, one more thing about Jamie New here and why I'm maybe not quite ready to say that he's a Heisman Trophy candidate, it's the eye test as well. It's not just the stats. I think you can throw context in there with the stats. But, like, when I watch Jamie Newman play and break down his game, I see a lot of things I really like, things that get me excited, things that, that will give us an opportunity to do some things offensively that we have not been able to do with the guys that we've had at quarterback for a decade plus. He has an incredible arm. He has incredible deep ball accuracy as well, which, I, which is something that we have been lacking. We have to be honest there. He's a, a great athlete, a powerful athlete as well, uh, which I, I think is going to allow us to do some different things offensively. But when I watch him as a passer right now, at least based off what I saw last year, this guy largely only knows one speed with the ball. He has a great arm. He knows it, and he just tries to laser every ball into every window, even when you need – some touch in the ball. And that's one of the things that made Joe Burrow so great. Like Burrow had a good solid arm, a good enough arm, but Burrow's ability to know how much touch to put on the ball, his ability just to put it right where it needed to be, it was uncanny. And I haven't necessarily seen that consistently from Jamie Newman. It's not, and it's not something that he can't develop over time. And maybe he can do it. Maybe he was coached to do it that way. I don't know. But he tries to fit a fastball into every single window and every single throw has to be his 99-mile-an-hour fastball. And let me clarify real quick. He does show the ability to put plenty of beautiful touch on deep balls. And that's one of the reasons his deep ball accuracy is so strong. I think it was second in the country last year. I'm talking more about more about short passes and intermediate passes where on most of those throws, it seems like he feels like he just has to fire the ball in there to his receiver as hard as he possibly can. Uh, and this, that's one thing that I think that he needs to work on there and needs to grow a little bit. And he also does make some questionable decisions. Like some of the interceptions, like, yeah, sure. Anytime you look at like interception numbers, you say, like, okay, we threw 11 interceptions. 
sure, any number of those, anybody you're looking at, it's going to have some that were tinted line of scrimmage that weren't really the quarterback's fault. Receiver runs a, a, a wrong route or you're hit as you're throwing the ball, all those things. That happens. But if you actually watch him, like the stats tell you one thing. When you watch Jamie Newman, like he actually legitimately made some terrible decisions with the football last year. Partly probably because he's playing at Wake Forest. You're without two of your three best receivers. you got to force some things, try to win some games. You're typically speaking to be the, the, the least talented team out there. And, and there's certainly an element of him trying to force some things. I get that to a degree. More, more so than he's going to have to here at Georgia. But the fact remains, like I have seen – some really questionable decisions with the football. Again, doesn't mean he can't get better with, with better coaching and a different scheme, but I do think that's something that he needs to work on as well. So all that being said, I think he has a skill set to potentially be in a situation where he could contend for the Heisman Trophy. I just haven't seen him do the things on the field consistently for me to be ready to say, like, right now I feel really comfortable saying, oh, yeah, he's going to be a Heisman Trophy candidate. He's going to be in New York. I'm not dismissing it because you made some great points, Kurt, but – I just don't know if I'm quite there yet. And I want to be wrong. Like, I want him to prove me wrong more than anything on earth. I would love nothing more than Jamie Newman to win the Heisman Trophy. I just don't know if I can quite go there yet. But I, I want to continue on this conversation. Uh, let's think about some of those guys that were ahead of Jamie Newman. So we had, again, we had obviously Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields. Then you have Spencer Rattler from Oklahoma. Again, the presumptive starter at Oklahoma. That's Oklahoma the one I think is an absolute joke. Yeah, that was my question. Like, would you have Newman ahead of any of those guys? I think I'm with you. I think I would have Newman ahead of Rattler right now. Why would you have him there? I think Rattler's extremely overrated also to begin with. I don't think he's the quarterback that everyone thinks he is. They just think, oh, uh, it's Lincoln Riley, the next one up for him. But I honestly don't believe that that's going to be the case. I mean, it's hard to argue against the Lincoln Riley effect. I mean, if you look at Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, back to back high school. Trophy remember how much they're losing, too, though. I mean, you, you yeah. lose Hazelwood for the entire year. You're, you're not sure. as deep wide receivers and things like that. Ruth Trey Sermon. Lost, yeah, you just lost Trey Sermon. I mean, I think that, and I honestly don't believe Rattler's that, that great because, I mean, they were in the market for more quarterbacks. Yeah, they were after some guys. They absolutely were. I don't know what to think about Rattler. Like Rattler was really highly rated coming out of high school. He's an athletic guy. He's he's got some Baker Mayfield in him. Like even like with the attitude, like he's got a lot of Baker Mayfield in him. Doesn't mean he's Baker Mayfield. And Lincoln Riley has just been remarkable with his development of quarterbacks. I mean, his track record speaks for itself. He had two straight Heisman Trophy winners. You had Jalen Hurts last year coming in as a grad transfer who was right there in that conversation all year long. But as good as Lincoln Riley is, and as good of the quarterbacks that he's had have been, and as good as he's done building those guys into Heisman Trophy contenders every single year, I don't know if Spencer Rattler is ready to be that guy in year one. Maybe, maybe. But I just, I would actually put Jamie Newman ahead of Spencer Rattler. I know Oklahoma has the system. And the, and the Lincoln Riley effect is a real thing, but I have seen nothing. I mean, literally, we've seen nothing from Spencer Rattler to this point. So until I see something, and maybe I can change my tune in the first week of the, of the season, or the first month of the season next year. But at this point, while I don't think Newman's numbers have been spectacular, and I, and I do think he has some things he needs to work out, like his track record is far better than Rattler. So at this point, I would actually put Newman ahead of Spencer Rattler. What about Ellinger? Is it fair to have Ellinger ahead of Newman right now? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I've seen a lot of things where Ellinger is like the number three rated quarterback in, in college football behind uh, Fields and Lawrence, however you put those two. And I think that's an absolute joke. Ellinger was a uh, turnover machine. I mean, I honestly don't know where it's coming from. Yeah, I mean, Ellinger's a – yeah, he, I, I think he was about the same number of interceptions as – as we saw from Newman last year, I think he had 10 picks, but he also fumbled a number of times last year as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Elmer was not great last year. I mean, Texas in general took a huge step back. They're, they're supposed to be back, right? But that, yeah, didn't didn't quite happen that way. I, I I would not argue with you to have Newman ahead of Ellinger. I, and again, I know Ellinger's. If you look at the just by, based on numbers, you're gonna say, well, Ellinger's put up like for three straight years better numbers than Jamie Newman. Okay, but he's also at Texas, right? So yeah, I, I think if you watch what those guys play, I, actually, I think there's some pretty strong comparisons between the two. I think they're both. Athletic guys who are physical runners can run between the tackles. I think Newman also has a better skill set as a passer. And, and really all around, I just think Jamie Newman has a higher ceiling. Maybe you can make the argument that Ellinger is closer to getting to his ceiling. But I think if both guys reach their ceilings, if both guys ultimately max out their capabilities, that Newman has a higher ceiling long term. So if Newman gets closer to reaching that ceiling this year, then I think... I think it's fair to say, hey, you know what? I think Newman might have better odds to win the Heisman than Sam Ellinger. I don't think that's crazy. And I don't think it'd be crazy if someone said Sam Ellinger either. I don't think there's a huge gap there. But I don't think it'd be crazy to have Newman ahead of Ellinger. Um, all right, a couple more things here real quick. Looking at uh, – Carl, I'm curious to hear what you think about how Newman compares to the players that are just behind him on the list. So we talked about the, how he compares to players that are a little bit ahead of him. What about the players behind him? Coming in just behind Newman at 25 to 1 odds for the Heisman, you got Kyle Trask, who we already talked about, Ian Book from Notre Dame, running back Travis Etienne from Clemson, Oklahoma State running back Chuba Hubbard, Alabama quarterback Mac Jones at 25 to 1. That's ooh, that's, that's the one that's an absolute joke. I mean, yeah, you got Waddle back, Devonta Smith, but you don't have Ruggs. I mean, not uh, Judy, who was the guy? Was, yeah, you have Judy, you don't have Ruggs back. And, yeah, and Mac and, Jones is not Tua. He's solid, but he's not Tua. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he had some good games but like uh, against Auburn and stuff, but he also threw two pick sixes. Like we've always mentioned, when you have that many receivers, people are going to be open. Kyle Trask is not an athlete. Um, you saw, especially when they didn't trust him in short yard situations against us, instead of throwing it to Kyle Pitts, you lose um, the wide receiver. I can't think of his name at the moment. Van Jefferson. Yeah, Van Jefferson. So – I mean, it, it and Slade, you lose, you lose your two best receivers. Yeah, and then Hubbard. Uh, I just don't believe Oklahoma State will ever give a running back enough attention with the way their offense is built. He ran for two thousand yards last year. Yeah, and well, let's be honest too. A lot of the time, they like to put the Heisman on a good team, and I don't. Yeah, and that's that. the thing. Is Oklahoma State going to be good enough to where he's because Chuba Chub Hubbard ran for two thousand yards last year, and got no, and really didn't get a chance to win the Heisman. Yeah, absolutely Heisman. no. And who was the other guy? Travis Etienne from Clemson. Um. See, all the attention is going to be on Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, and I, I think, honestly, is there a potential where Travis Etienne and Trevor Lawrence, I don't want to say completely split votes, but can they take votes away from each other? Uh, wouldn't shock me. Isn't there another Etienne's quarterback? gone for over 1,600 yards rushing two straight years. Is there another quarterback on that list? Yeah, De'Aaron King. Uh, no, Miami just does not have the help there. Yeah, my I don't know if Miami's ready to make that jump yet. And Derek King put up really good numbers in 2018. So I mean, yeah. when he's Derek King, you goes for he threw for just under 3,000 yards, 36 touchdowns, and six interceptions as a starter in 2018 at Houston. And but he he played it's a group of five schedule. He played two Power Five teams that year. He played Texas Tech and Arizona, two lower level group of five teams. I think both I'm almost positive both those teams had losing records in 2018. In fact, that's I'm certain that that's the case. And those are the only two Power 5 teams he played. And he put up good numbers in those games, but, I mean, those are trash teams. Let's just be real. And the rest of the schedule is, is group of five. So he's – I'm not saying he's a terrible player. I think he's good, but I, I don't know. Like you, you put him with Miami playing a Power 5 schedule. I know it's an ACC schedule, so it's hardly Power 5, but still a Power 5 schedule with 
that Miami roster who's just not there yet. I mean, I have faith that they're going to recruit well under Manny Diaz here in the next couple of years. I just don't think they're there right now, especially if last year's any indication. Their offense was an absolute disaster. I know quarterback was a big part of that, but it was a disaster last year for them offensively. So I, I don't know. Like Derek King, I think it's fair that he's behind Jamie Newman right now. We consider what Jamie Newman's going to have to work with coming into uh, the 2020 season here at Georgia. So, yeah, I, I don't have an issue with any of those guys being behind uh, Jamie Newman. I think, again, I don't think Jamie Newman's necessarily ready. I'm not ready to say he's a Heisman contender, a true Heisman contender, but I don't think those guys necessarily should be ahead of him at this point either. So I'm okay with that. And then the last question here on the Heisman odds curve, beyond Jamie Newman, let's look beyond Jamie Newman just for one second. Let's look at guys between 30 to 1 and 51, 50 to 1 odds to win it. We've got at 30 to 1, Miles Brennan, uh, quarterback's presumptive starter at LSU, Sam Howell, returning starter at North Carolina, Adrian Martinez, quarterback at Nebraska, Bo Nix at Auburn at 30 to 1. 40 to 1, you got Najee Harris, running back at Alabama, quarterback Spencer Sanders from Oklahoma State, 50 to 1, Kellen Mond from Texas AM, and quarterback Keaton Slovis from usc so Kurt, if, if you look at those guys i just gave you eight names there brennan howell martinez nicks harris sanders mon slovis which of those eight guys who are, are realistically long shots would you take a flyer on like of those guys who has the most value probably kellen mon why do you say mon um i think in year three under jimbo and just the fact that he's probably the most dual threat of the group that could do enough with his legs um to potentially put him in a situation to, you know, get some attention and say A&M has a good year. Um, Howell, he put up some very good passing numbers last year, but I just don't know if he's a complete package. Miles Brennan, I think that LSU's offense could take a step back. And Martinez, no. I mean, the rest of them. That's completely the hype train. That is hype train off the rails. It's been that way since he was a true freshman. And he's never – I know he's had some injuries, but he's never come close to it to this point. Maybe it changes this year. Bo Nix? No. Not, not a Bo Nix believer? I'm not either. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Like, you mentioned Sam Howell. Sam Howell is one you would look at. And he was really good as a true freshman. But, yeah, I mean, and they're all the – basically everyone's back for that that North Carolina offense. They have 10 stars back in that North Carolina offense. That was really good last year. They have a ton of really good receivers. Daz Newsom is as good as there is in the country. He's really, really good. But he, and he threw for 3,600 yards as a true freshman, 38 touchdowns, only seven picks. But he only completed 61% of his passes last year. And that's a – heavily rpo based offense which and i bring that up because those should be easy throws you're making one read and he only completed 61 percent of his passes in that kind of offense the phil longo offense which is the offense back at, from old miss where when shea patterson actually put up good numbers at old miss that was the quarterback or that was the, the offense coordinator jordan tayamu as well like those guys who didn't even get drafted put up huge numbers under uh, Phil Longo, and that's who sam howell's working with as his coordinator at north carolina so i think howell's really good but I don't know if he's ready to be in the Heisman Trophy conversation. He has, some, But he does have some really good receivers. I think they're going to put up huge numbers again this year. So maybe that'll get him there. He's got to win enough games. The answer – and I like your answer of Kellen Mond. I, I like Mond there as well. I think I – think, because I think A&M is poised to potentially have a big year this year. They, they might be a, a sleeper team in the SEC in year three of Jimbo Fisher. And I, if that's the case and they're contending – then Kellen Mond – first off, Kellen Mond's going to have to be good for them to be able to do that. And he, and he hasn't been consistent. Say, that's, that's, that means Kellen Mond's having a good year. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think that's a crazy answer. I like that a lot. I would go – my answer, that would be Keaton Slovis from USC. I know you're. I know everyone's thinking, like, I'm crazy. Well, the USC only reason I didn't go with him and Book is you got to remember all the weapons they are losing receiving-wise, especially Book when you lose and commit 
and uh, yeah. Oh, Ian Book for sure. Yeah, yeah. The book is losing everybody, but Keaton Slovis. The reason I'm going with him. All right. I don't know if you guys know this, but USC has more returning starters than any team in America. They have, and I know defensively doesn't really matter, but they have all 11 starters back defensively, and they have eight starters back on offense. They have all their wide receivers come back except for Michael Pittman. And yes, Michael Pittman was their best receiver last year. But they still have Amon Ross St. Brown. You have Tyler Vaughn. You have Drake London. They have weapons at receiver for Keaton Slovis. And Keaton Slovis, as a freshman last year, threw for 3,500 yards, 72% completion percentage, 30 touchdowns, nine interceptions. Under Graham Harrell, they were able to keep Graham Harrell's offensive coordinator. He is going to put up massive numbers. With 19 starters back, I would not be shocked if USC won the Pac-12 this year. I would not be shocked. But if they're in contention and he puts up those massive numbers again, Watch out for that name, because I think he, I think he could be a contender, and it's USC as well, which are is already going to get he's going to get the West Coast vote. So just a just a name to kind of throw out there. But uh, all right, moving on from the Heisman conversation, good old Greg McGarity has agreed to a one year extension to his contract as George George's AD, and will receive a seven hundred thousand dollars salary next year, which means he would actually still be the lowest paid athletic director in the SEC, which is kind of strange to think about, but. That's the case. Uh, and I wouldn't read anything into the short nature of the extension because that's what McGarity wants. President Moore has been very clear about wanting to keep McGarity on as long as they'll stay. He was actually quoted as saying, uh, quote, I'd be happy to have Greg as athletic director as long as I'm president of this university, but he prefers this approach. And it was actually long rumored that McGarity would be leaving the job this summer. I've actually been waiting for some news on this since this whole pandemic thing's been going on. I think the pandemic has a lot to do with why he's back. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, yeah. So, Kurt McGarry has been a popular punching bag at times during his tenure for a variety of reasons. We've thrown our fair share of jabs as well his way. But is this a good thing for Georgia? I don't think it's a bad thing. I honestly don't believe it was the right time to make a change in general. Why? Why is that? The whole pandemic. I, I just think that there's a lot of uncertainties that you needed to have some stable leadership in a time like this as you're trying to push through and implement, you know, strict guidelines or things. I just don't think it was a good time to try to break someone in. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think McGarry, I, I, I've had a pretty good authority. McGarity had for a while now planned to step down after this summer, which is when the, the athletic calendar ends. So that was kind of my expectation. But then the pandemic, as you mentioned, kind of threw everything into chaos. And I think this is the right move for us. I'm actually, I'm happy about this because you're exactly right. Kurt. I, when you're trying to go through this whole situation with the pandemic, the potential financial straits that we could be dealing with, you want to have as much continuity and experience on the job as you possibly can. And I know Greg McGarity has been beaten up in the media. Fans have beaten him up really more than anyone. And you and I have done our fair share of that, but I, I think he's done a pretty good job really since Kirby smart came on. I think it's been a different story, right? Are you with me on that? Yeah, once he got past the Mark Rick fire and Kirby Smart won some games, um, it's been a little bit smoother sailing for him. Well, it also helped baseball finally start winning. Everything's kind of fallen into place. Yeah, in basketball, I, I know we haven't got to the tournament in a while, and but we did make the Tom Crean hire. We finally made the move there. Mark Fox was a little too late for my liking, but finally made the move there. And I, I think we're moving. I know it's hard to say that right now based on the first two years. But it was a it was it was kind of a turnaround job there. Let's be real. And I think we're moving in the right direction there. The facilities were one of the issues I had for a long time with the fact that we did not have an indoor practice facility for the longest time. And and Mark Rick wanted one forever, but he just didn't have the capital, I guess, to 
to the political capital to get it done. And McGarry was kind of very flippant about, like whenever he was asked about the indoor practice facility, the possibility of getting one, he was very flippant about it. Like, oh, we'd only use it like, you know, I don't know, seven or eight times a year when it rains. Like, no, dude, no, no, that's not the only time you would use it. Are you kidding me? I think he obviously finally came around. So to his credit, he came around, he saw the light. And I think he's done a really good job overseeing the expansion in the West End Zone, the locker rooms, all that. Now the, the Buttsmere expansion. I think he's done a really good job there. And Stegman Coliseum, I know people like forever Stegman Coliseum was a punching bag for people. Like, oh, it's, it's a terrible arena. But it's like, it, honestly, I think it's pretty great now. Uh, it, I'm not I mean, saying they, it's. They finally, have, he, he's really loosened the spinning strings a lot. Yes. Which is helped. Yes. And I don't know if it's Kirby actually coming in and supplying a lot of capital, which it seems he has um, gotten some more money to influx into the program. But either way, the, the, Tightness of the spinning strings is one of the things that's really helped him. Yeah, loosening those strings, absolutely. I think it's it's a combination of things. You know, we've gotten more money from TV revenue with the SEC network, and obviously Kirby coming in generated a lot of excitement, especially the 2017 season. And so the donations have been up there. And I mean, look, the the West End Zone project and the indoor practice facility were essentially almost entirely funded by donors. Like we didn't have to dip into our reserves really anything at all there. Now the Buttsmere project's a little bit different. But regardless, I think he's done a good job since Kirby's come on the job for a variety of reasons. Now, before that, I had I had some concerns, and uh, there's still some concerns about some, I guess, what people consider minor sports, like with tennis. You guys know I'm a, I'm a tennis guy, and I, I think he's kind of done them wrong over the years, but whatever. But I think he's done a pretty good job over the past four or five years, and with this with the pandemic staring us in the face, I think it was right for him to stay on. I actually appreciate McGarry staying on because I think he wanted to retire, but he's doing this for his alma mater, and I, I actually – want to give him some credit here. I want to, I want to applaud him for kind of stepping up to the plate and staying on doing what's best for our program and maybe not necessarily what was best for him and kind of giving back to his alma mater here. And I know it's easy to say, well, you're giving back. You're still making $700,000 next year, but it, it's a tough job. It's a big job. And he's the lowest paid AD in the SEC. And so I think he did this for his university uh, and wanted to leave him in, leave us in the right spot. So I do appreciate that. But uh, all right, Kerr, a few more things here before we get out of here today. The UGA Athletic Association Board of Directors also held its annual end of the academic year meeting last week. And while it was, it was like not necessarily uh, – there weren't huge announcements. It was short on major announcements. I did take away a few things from the releases from that meeting. The first thing that caught my attention was the budget for 2021 was $149.4 million, which is only down $4.5 million from last year's record budget of $153.9 million. And that's actually with COVID-related issues built in and kind of accounted for in this budget. So, Kurt, I know this is an exercise in speculation, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. But with all the fear swirling around athletic budgets in this, in this coronavirus era, what conclusions, if any, are you drawing about the fact that the 2021 budget is very similar to the 2020 budget? Um, that they think they're going to, I mean, I think it's simple, as simple as I think they think that there will be fans in the stadium uh, come this fall. You nailed it. That's exactly, that was my takeaway. And like, I don't know that for sure, but like when you look at the budget and you, all you've heard for the past three months is, oh my God, oh my God, college sports might not be able to survive because we're not going to have, we might not have football. And even if we have football, we might not have fans in the stands. We're not going to make enough money to, to fund all the other sports, the, the sports that are non-revenue producing sports. Oh my God, college sports as we know it. It, it will never be the same. But then here comes the budget, and the budget's only $4.5 million off of what last year's budget was. So that, what that tells me is, hmm, it doesn't seem like our athletic department, our board of directors is really 
all that worried about a drop in revenue. Because if they were, that would be accounted for more so in the budget. That's what it tells me. And if you're not worried about a drop in revenue, that means you're not worried about fans not coming to the games. Because if you didn't think fans were coming, that's going to be uh, more of a drop in revenue than $4.5 million would be in the budget. So that's what I took away as well. And on the topic of fans in the stands this fall, which we told you guys is what the, the conversation around fall sports would pivot to, not whether the seasons would be played, but whether fans would be allowed to, to attend, and if so, how many fans. But I think the momentum towards fans in the stands and maybe even full stadiums continues to grow. After the, the athletic board directors meeting, President Moorhead took some questions from the media, and he had this to say about fans in attendance this fall in Sanford Stadium. He said, personally, I'm hoping that we don't have to put any restrictions on at Sanford Stadium, but I have no idea what the public health experts are going to be telling us at that point. And if they say we have to have social distancing or you have to wear masks, then we'll approach things as we're advised to do so. But the momentum doesn't stop there. Also last week, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas said stadiums in his state can operate at 50% capacity immediately, and we're still roughly three months from week one of the college football season. And then yesterday, this might be the biggest news. I think this is potentially game-changing news. The WHO, the World Health Organization, who has actually been really conservative in their approach to this entire pandemic, but they came out yesterday actually and are now saying – that asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19 very rarely transmit or spread the disease to others. So, Kurt, we discussed this a few weeks ago in the mailbag. At that time, I said there was a 70-30 chance we would have fans in, the, in some capacity in the stadiums. But I only gave it a 20% chance that we would have full stadiums early in the season. I, I think you were pretty similar in your projections. But we said on that show that these projections were based on what we knew right then, and there's a long way to go before the season kicked off, and these decisions had to be made. So now here we are just two weeks later, Kurt. And there's already been more development on this front. So with what we now know, do you want to adjust those projections on fans in Sanford Stadium come September 12th? Yeah, I think it'll be the chances are going to be higher. Uh, I mean, especially as the heat is starting to uh, rise, you're not seeing the virus spread as much. And then also at the same time, like we're having people test positive that are showing no symptoms. So it's really showing that, it really has affected a select, not a select few, because there's been a lot of cases, but types of people. Right. I, I, to me, that's the biggest news here. All those developments are positive. I think the most positive development is the the World Health Organization saying that asymptomatic carriers aren't aren't spreading the disease, because that's what everyone was worried about. Everything everyone was worried about. Oh well, you could have the disease and not know it, and go out in public and spread it to someone else. So we can't have mass gatherings. Well, if if you if that's not the case, if you can have the disease and be asymptomatic and not spread to anyone, then why are we not having mass gatherings? I think that completely undercuts that argument against mass gatherings. I really do. I think that's a game-changing development. We'll see. Well, and you'll see it more as summer goes on because as NASCAR is going to start having fans, golf in July will have fans. So they're really going to set the, set the stage. Yeah, I agree. And I'm also very curious to see if we have a spike in the percentage of new cases over the next week in the aftermath of all the protests over the country the past couple of weeks, where if you saw, everyone saw, social distancing was absolutely not being practiced. Like if we don't see that spike over the next couple of weeks, I seriously think that's another feather in the full stadium's cap. And I think that has to be strongly considered when making that decision. Does that make sense, Kurt? Oh, I agree 100% because there was large uh, gatherings of people. And if there's not like a crazy spike that it's going to show it's already starting to decline it will show encouragement yeah absolutely i mean if you have all these people out there we're talking 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Those were mass gatherings. And if we don't see a spike in cases in this country in the next week or so, which is basically the incubation period, then I think it's going to be really hard for decision makers to argue that there's going to be some massive spike in infections if people go sit in stadiums and have those kind of mass gatherings. I just don't think that makes a ton of sense, especially when taken in conjunction with all the other research, all the other data points that have been coming out over the past couple of weeks that seems to point us in the right direction and kind of giving us some positive momentum towards potentially having fans in stadiums. I mean, think about it, guys. A couple of weeks ago, the first big news we heard is that transmission is dramatically reduced in outdoor environments, which is why outdoor seating at restaurants, even in cities that have been like the hardest hit uh, in the United States and, and around the world, even those cities are allowing restaurants to reopen with almost unlimited outdoor seating right now. And some states have been doing that for uh, well over a month now. So that was the first big development that I think really put us on the right path towards potentially having fans in stadiums. And then after that, a couple of weeks back, the CDC here in Atlanta came out and announced that, oh, by the way, guys, it doesn't seem that the coronavirus is really transmitted via surfaces, which really threw me for a loop because for how long were we told that we had to wash our hands 117 times a day for 20 seconds at every time because you never know what surface you're going to touch and if it has the virus on it and you could transmit it by touching the surface and touching your face, touching your eyes, and now you're going to die. And the CDC comes out and says, oh yeah, well, our bad. We thought that was the case, but now we're saying that that's actually not what's happening. So to me, that was another big step in the right direction because in stadiums, you're inevitably going to be touching common services that all sorts of other people are touching. And that if you could transmit it via surfaces, that is a legitimate concern. When they say, well, that's not happening, then that concern is thrown out the window. And now the world's leading scientists are coming out and saying that asymptomatic carriers rarely transmit and spread the disease, which was the entire reason, let's be real, the entire reason behind people wearing masks in public and restricting large gatherings in general because someone might be asymptomatic and have the disease without knowing it, then go out in public and unwittingly transmit it to other people. And and that that was a, a very real fear when that's what we thought was happening. But now the World Health Organization says that is not really happening. And, uh, and I know all the politicians out there are fond of saying that they want to be guided by data and science, which makes sense. You should be guided by data and science. But with all this information coming out based on studies and research done by the top scientists in the world, that data, that science seems to be suggesting that mass gatherings might not actually be much of an issue after all if if, and this is a big if, if people who are showing symptoms stay home. Now, those people certainly need to stay home. And I don't know how you ensure that those people stay home. I guess maybe you do temperature checks and that kind of thing. But if those people stay home, then I don't think it's going to be as much of an issue as we maybe thought a month or so ago, even a couple of weeks ago. I mean, think about this, guys. Saver Stadium, it's outdoors. Scientists are now saying it doesn't really spread outside. You don't have to worry about contracting it from touching common services, which, again, is inevitable in a stadium. And now asymptomatic carriers aren't really a threat. With that information, I'm adjusting my projections here to say that I I have now, I have about a 95% confidence level that we're going to have fans in some capacity in Sanford Stadium with the home opener on September 12th. I'm very, very confident. I'm leaving a 5% chance there because you just don't know how things are going to develop over the next couple of months. But honestly, I mean, 
Think about it. We're about three months out now from when this thing first hit. And think about how far we've come in those three months. And we've got about another three months to make even more progress. So if, if the next three months we have as much progress with this deal as we've had through the first three months, I think we're going to be looking in pretty good shape. And, and you never know. You never know. I am not a scientist. I'm not trying to be one. I'm just trying to look at the data and draw conclusions. But based on what we've seen so far and, and what all the scientists are saying, if you actually listen to what they're saying, it's looking better and better. And I'm also going to adjust and say, honestly, and this might be a little aggressive, but I'm about 70% confident now, up from 20%, like just two weeks ago, that we're going to have full stadiums if things continue to trend in the right direction. I just really believe that World Health Organization announcement that asymptomatic carriers are rarely transmitting the disease. I just think that's a massive game changer here when it comes to mass gatherings because that was really the underpinning behind the whole anti-mass gathering movement and, and wearing masks and all that kind of thing. So if that announcement stands and they don't go back and, and change their mind on that, which who knows, they might. Maybe they find some more information and they go back and say, actually, no, we had it right the first time. That could be possible. But uh, I'm feeling more and more confident by the minute. And I know that's not necessarily Georgia-specific, Georgia-related, but it's a big deal. It's it's a big deal for our program. It's a big deal for me because I just I live for this stuff. I know it's a big deal for all of you guys out there that want to go to games. And I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I think this year has a chance to be really special for us. And I would love for fans to be able to be a part of that. And it just college football would be weird. It would just be weird, man. It wouldn't feel right without fans in the stadium. So I'm excited about the possibilities. We'll see. I don't. I'm trying so hard to not get completely ahead of myself here, but. I got really pumped up. I'm not going to lie. I got really pumped up when I saw that news from the World Health Organization yesterday. I, I saw it in the morning and I kind of ran downstairs screaming and scared my wife half to death. I actually didn't scare her. She's kind of used to those kind of things at this point in the marriage. Uh, but uh, needless to say, I was very, very excited. And again, I, I, I'm not trying to say it's a done deal. It's not. I just think it's pointing in the right direction. A lot, a lot of positive momentum. And let's just hope to God that things keep trending that way because I just can't imagine college football without fans. I just can't. It's I'll take it. I'll take it. But it just won't seem right. But all right, guys, that does it for today here on the Glory UGA podcast. Of course, we will be back later on this week with some more Georgia content for you guys. So make sure to check back in then. Thanks for listening. As always, for Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>